BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Prince Harry endures a day and a half long court grilling, but gets a boost in his battle with the US paparazzi, and Princess Eugenie has had a baby. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show, Tristan Kirk, the Evening Standard's Court Correspondent. And thank you for joining me at this momentous time. We've had the first royal in the witness box since 1891, which was when the future Edward VII was dragged into a court case about gambling. Now, this time, it's Prince Harry. So you were in court. What did you think of the whole case, Harry's performance, all of that kind of stuff? It's quite a moment, isn't it, seeing Prince Harry on the witness stand giving his evidence, uh, talking us through some really, really private moments in his life, some of the worst moments in his life, actually, uh, when he's been hauled over the coals, um, caught out wearing a Nazi uniform, all his private life raked up. I thought it was fascinating, as you might expect, to see him there giving his evidence. But overall, I thought it was a really sad experience to see uh, somebody who is actually um, very similar age to me, so I've got a, a degree of empathy there, to see somebody just talking intimately about how difficult they found everything, how uh, their whole life, although lived in immense privilege, has been spent uh, ducking and diving from the, the waiting media, every misstep sort of raked over in, in intimate details, uh, just everything in his life pulled out for entertainment. And tell me some of the kind of big uh, moments for you. You've talked, obviously, about the Nazi uniform. What do you think really stood out from his witness statement and his testimony in terms of some of the kind of more empathetic and sympathetic elements of his story? Well, when he was talking about his relationship with Chelsea Davy, that was, uh, I think, some of the most powerful testimony that he gave uh, he had this romance with with his first true love essentially it was his first uh, major girlfriend and the tabloid press particularly in britain uh, took it apart piece by piece uh, every moment every step of their relationship was under this intense scrutiny massive spotlight over them and i, I think ultimately it was it was always going to be doomed to failure uh, I mean, perhaps, you know, it was, it was a first relationship and perhaps it was always going to end that way. But the just the the huge amount of scrutiny that they came under and, and, and talking about how they found photographers hiding under cars, trying to get a, you know pictures uh, in the bushes, waiting for them at the hotels whenever they arrived, getting hold of their flight details, medical records, just sounded like this this huge amount of scrutiny that no normal relationship could ever thrive in. And he obviously said that he felt that the Mirror Group's reporting, and I think we can probably assume reporting by other tabloid newspapers as well, was a major factor in her decision that, in his words, a royal life was not for her. So he's, he's kind of effectively blamed them for the breakup of the relationship. 
Yeah, that's right. One of the features of Prince Harry's evidence and, and his complaints against the Mirror Group newspaper is that he, he's, he's essentially not just talking about the Mirror Group. He's talking about the entire tabloid press. So when he makes those complaints, um, some of his witness statements from other legal cases he's bringing is, is identical because his complaint yeah. is against the entire tabloid media saying that... Uh, they they were tearing this relationship apart and they were not not just not just doing things that were making it fail but he says they were actively trying to make it fail because it would make a better story for them that they almost delighted and and congratulated themselves when when the the relationship broke up i think he said didn't he that he believed that he there was a particular headline which went hooray harry's dumped um, which he said he felt was them celebrating the end of the relationship and obviously the mirror group's lawyers pushed back quite hard on that and said that he had a nickname hooray harry and that the news story had quoted a friend of chelsea davies saying um, that she was sick and tired of his hooray behavior but harry clearly i mean as a window into what he was feeling at the time he clearly felt that that was them saying hooray harry's dumped Oh, well, I, I have a lot of sympathy with him, to be honest with you. I, I, I personally felt like there was some reaching going on from the Mirror Group, that uh, this was a nickname that was going around and somehow this was something that everybody would already appreciate. See a headline that says, Hooray, Harry Dump. I think we all know what that means and we can all read it uh, as 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 you would, you would do normally. And being the person in the story, I can fully appreciate why, why Prince Harry wouldn't uh, have uh, liked that one little bit. Now, let's talk a little bit about Harry's actual experience of giving evidence. You were obviously in court with him. Did you feel you got a sense uh, from him of whether he was relaxed, whether he was anxious, whether he was feeling under pressure? You obviously said at the very end of it that the experience had been a lot. Yeah, well, it was over two days. So it was eight hours split up over two days. And I, I felt certainly that the first day was a much more difficult one for him than the second day perhaps had time to regroup uh, overnight and to refocus his energies and he came came out um, fighting on the second day and, and had had a much better performance on the first day he was he was quite um anxious uh, he was he was a lot quieter than I was expecting. Uh, somebody who you you know is a, a particularly outspoken public figure. It was, it was sometimes difficult to hear what he was saying. I think he was struggling at times with with the the what was a new kind of occasion for him being uh, not just questioned but forensically cross examined by somebody who was determined to to pick a, apart everything that he was saying. Um, and so he, he, I mean he, he came through it uh, with quite a lot of consistency, even though he might have struggled on the first day, I thought anyway. Uh, on the second day, he was he was a lot more focused on on uh, on the the injustices that he thinks that he's suffered and the struggles that he's had. And he was um, you know a lot more eloquent than he was on the first day. Uh, but throughout the eight hours, across the two days, I think that he was quite consistent that he is the wronged party here and he's, he's fully entitled to, uh, to to go all out for, for some form of justice. So let's talk a little bit about what the case is actually about. So you've mentioned some of the some of the articles that it concerns, but I mean, essentially the nub of it is that he is accusing Mirror Group journalists of hacking 
either his phone or the phones of some of his kind of closest confidants and associates and staff. He, in one part of it, accuses the Mirror Group of hacking Princess Diana's phone while he was a child at Ludgrove School. But it's not just about phone hacking. He's also making allegations in relation to other kinds of unlawful information gathering, including a practice that in Britain we term blagging. Now, obviously, this term is, I think, quite a, a British term and could do with some unpacking for a US audience. Yeah, this is, I mean, when you step back on this case, uh, particularly Prince Harry's case, the the scale of it is quite staggering um, to think about. We're talking about 15 years of his life, 1996 through to 2011, where he says he was consistently, routinely phone hacked, uh, that journalists were trying every trick in the book that they have to get hold of his private information, whether that were, those were legal or illegal means. And, and you mentioned blagging. That was one of the one of the key tactics that was uh, allegedly deployed by the Mirror Group and some of its private investigators. It involves essentially calling up, uh, thinking that an organization or a person has some information that's private and either using using words pretending to be something to get hold of that information i suppose the the classic example would be to ring up a hospital uh say pretend that you are there as a representative of uh, a patient say printari uh, and uh, convince the hospital administrator to give out some private details that they wouldn't already ordinarily do. So that, that's essentially what a blag is. And that's something that was, I think, quite commonplace within the journalistic industry, certainly within private investigators' um, line of work, uh, to get hold of this information. And it's an unlawful technique. Now, so Prince Harry's accusing the Mirror Group and in other cases of other newspapers of doing all of this stuff over many, many years, targeting not just him, but his brother, Prince William, his mother, Princess Diana, pretty much every friend and associate he'd ever had, uh, his school, Eton, um, Sandhurst, Military Academy. It just The list goes on and on and on. And you're talking about uh, just almost uh, industrial-scale surveillance operation in order to scrape up any piece of information that they could to make a story. And what are the Mirror Group saying about this? Well, the Mirror Group have admitted one incident in 2004 of unlawful news gathering. There's an invoice that was paid out, uh, £75, for a piece of information about Prince Harry's trip to a nightclub in central London. Uh, There's no story that appears to flow from this this admitted piece of information. But the Mirror Group have said that a payment has been made. It's seems to have broken the law and therefore will admit that we did that. In, in the grand scheme of things, that's 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 a drop in the ocean because that, that's an admission to one very specific moment uh, when the allegation is, is 15 years of illegality. Um, on the stories that have been focused on in this trial, we've got 33 stories that we're looking at. Um, they say that the, there isn't the evidence to support the claim of phone hacking, or they deny that it was unlawful uh, news gathering or phone hacking. They deny, either deny or say that there isn't the evidence to support the allegations against them. 
they're quite forthright about that, aren't they? I think they said that there isn't a single piece of evidence to suggest that they hacked Harry's phone. So I suppose to balance that out, I think Harry's mobile phone number appeared on... There's been a lot of talk in court about Palm Pilots, which is a very sort of retro technological reference. But essentially, <laughs> there, were, <laughs> there were Mirror Group journalists who had Prince Harry's phone number. So clearly Harry's side would, are suggesting that that is an indication that they must have been hacking his phone. Otherwise, why did they have his number and how did they get it lawfully um, but at the same time the mirror groups lawyers are saying there is no call data related to prince harry harry suggested in court that they destroyed evidence and that is the reason and um, when asked by the mirror groups barrister um, how do you know this his reply was that's what my legal team told me so what do you make of that? We heard this kind of phrase a couple of times and also Harry saying when asked to really like nail down how he knows that his phone was hacked, he had a tendency to say, you know, that's a question for the journalists who wrote the story. Now, what is your take on this? You've obviously been covering the courts for years um, and must have seen innumerable cases come and go. Is this an unusual strategy for a witness? I think that uh, Prince Harry did say that a few times, uh, sort of defer to my legal team, or that's a question for somebody else. Uh, I think that that's, that's a, a fairly naive strategy when it comes to these things, because you're the one in the witness um, box, you're the ones being asked the questions. Uh, and and in, in litigation like this, where you've had months and months to prepare, you would expect the witness to have come with, with an answer to all of those questions, to have conferred with their legal team and to know the full scale of things. That said, this case is much bigger than Prince Harry, and it's much bigger than what Prince Harry knows. Now, you talk there about deleting evidence uh, and, and, and phone numbers being sort of found in Palm Pilots uh, a very long time ago. Well, that's what's in the background of this case, and it's really, really important when we come to the, the, the final conclusion, because Prince Harry says he was phone hacked, he's got deep suspicions, he's the target of unlawful information gathering. The judge will look at all those allegations with what's known as the the generic case in the background, which is to say that the Mirror Group is accused of not just phone hacking Prince Harry and some of the other claimants in the case, but of phone hacking pretty much everybody they were writing stories about. And so the judge will be looking at that background material to say, well, when Prince Harry says he's got suspicions, and when he says that there probably was evidence, but it's been destroyed, do we believe that's true based on the background of what the Mirror Group was doing on an industrial scale during this period? So I think Prince Harry could have, could have tackled those questions slightly better, but ultimately those aren't really questions for him to answer of what the Mirror Group was and wasn't doing and why that evidence no longer exists. And in a similar vein, um, Andrew Green, the Mirror Group's barrister, was um, saying, taking him through his evidence. So his his witness statement, huge document, 55 pages, something like over 20,000 uh, words that he's written um, following discussions online with his legal team. And he does go through and make specific allegations in relation to these 33 specific articles. And he says, you know, this is, you know, one story here is extremely suspicious that they were paying money to this organization. Or here, it's incredibly suspicious that they printed this piece of information about me. I cannot think of a legal way that they could possibly have got it. Now, one of the things Andrew Green did was he took Harry through line by line and said, well, this piece of information here, did you know that, for example, the, you know, one of the cases, one of the articles was about Princess Diana visiting Harry for his birthday 
birthday when he was at Ludgrove School. And Andrew Green said this piece of information, you know, her presence, her visit to you was briefed by Princess Diana's spokesperson a week earlier and ran on the Press Association newsfeed. Now, you can argue one way or the other whether this does prove that Harry wasn't phone hacked. I mean, you can argue it both ways, I suppose. But one thing that was quite interesting to me was that Harry generally answered that he he hadn't known that some of the piece of information that he's complaining about had already appeared in other publications before they appeared in the mirror. And it's fascinating to me from the perspective of somebody who makes the decision to go ahead with a lawsuit without actually having a full grasp of the weaknesses to the case obviously like all cases have strengths and weaknesses and harry certainly has some strengths but it was quite interesting to me that he didn't appear to be fully across the weaknesses that's true it's true i i think that was again a, a, a level of naivety of somebody who's never been involved in a case like this and, and and came to it with has come to it with a really strong grievance that's not necessarily drilled down into the details of each individual piece and gone over where bits of information might have come from uh, for stories. But I, I think that Andrew Green's uh, cross-examination for Mirror Group uh, did two things. It highlighted the, the the strengths that the Mirror Group can rely on, but it also highlighted the, the, the huge weakness in their case in that the journalists who wrote the stories are largely not coming to give evidence. And so when he's pulling apart a particular story and saying, or oh, did you know this bit of information came from from this source? I mean, in one instance, we were talking about an interview Prince Harry himself had given for his 18th birthday, that he'd given out the information that he's now complaining about. Well, the Mirror Group could call all of the journalists who'd written all of the stories. It could pull forward its entire newsroom and say, well, no, this is how this particular story came about and knock down each individual one. And so in that respect, it's quite telling that the Mirror Group has not put forward all of those people, presumably because then they would open themselves up to questioning about all kinds of things that were going on within that those newsrooms over that period, uh, of which they don't necessarily want to be cross-examined about. Uh, and that would put them in all kinds of extra difficulties. And so they can't necessarily knock down all of these claims comprehensively, because they may well open themselves up to questions about you know, the level of phone hacking that was going on, which is admitted, by the way, that it's already admitted this was widespread within the newsroom. And so that's the difficulty within their case. So, yeah, when, when Prince Harry struggles because he doesn't know about, you know, a, a story in the mirror was lifted from the news of the world or, or a bit of information has come out from a, an agency report or, or or something that was already in the public domain, then those parts of his case may ultimately fail. But there are other parts of the case that are a lot stronger because nobody's available to come forward and knock them down. That's very interesting. And of course, the court did actually force one uh, journalist to attend court and answer questions. And um, it, she did acknowledge in court that she had not wanted to. And that was Jane Carr, um, who was a yes. royal correspondent for the Mirror Group during the, this period of time. Now, how did she perform? Well, she she was the the author on I think uh, ten of the thirty three stories that we've we've been looking at over this period, and her evidence was that she had paid quite a lot of money, or at least been the person who who authorised payments to private investigators who 
dragged up lots and lots of information and, and are now private investigators who've been acknowledged to have used unlawful means. Her evidence was that she had no idea how they went about getting those stories that she she authorised for their services to be used, but didn't know how it was that they got the information or, or whether it was legal or not. And she, she never went about uh, comprehensively checking whether there was uh, any unlawful behaviour going on on behalf of the Mirror Group. It, essentially, she said that if somebody came forward with some information on Prince Harry and others, uh, they checked whether it was accurate. Uh, and that was the, that was the, the sum total of it. So do you feel like it's possible to get a sense from being in court of the morale in the two camps? Do you feel like one side or the other is quietly confident? Do you think it's going better for one side than the other? Well, I've actually spent today um, listening to the evidence of Nikki Sanderson, who is uh, one of the co-claimants in in the case alongside Prince Harry. And her evidence is is following a very similar uh, trajectory to Prince Harry's. There are certain key features that that come out in the cross-examination with Andrew Green is that he is doing, as we've just been saying, uh, picking apart various stories as to where information may or may not have already been in the public domain and not necessarily come from phone hacking. But he's also focusing in on the level of distress that a particular story might have caused. Um, For example, when Prince Harry was given evidence, he would repeatedly ask, did you read this story at the time? And when he said no... He said, well, how can it possibly have caused you any distress if you didn't read the story at the time? To me, that's that's indicative of a, a barrister who's got one eye on the next stage of the process of of the 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 amount of damages that will will be awarded in the event of the mirror group losing some or all of the the case because then they'll be looking at uh, essentially limiting the damage that's caused by this kind of a case uh, and limiting the financial payout because these the, these this case Prince Harry's case is going to be used as a template for around about 100 other phone hacking and unlawful news gathering um, cases that have been brought by other rich, famous people. And so that gives you a sense of of where it's probably going to go. It's worth bearing in mind that this is the second phone hacking case against the Mirror Group newspapers. In the first one was in 2015. They already lost that. The damages were pretty disastrous. Uh, It was was, uh, eight famous people, including the footballer uh, Paul Gascoigne, gave evidence about phone hacking, uh, and the Mirror Group were generally considered to have lost pretty badly in that case. And so this is the second one. And we've already got a, an admission from the first one of, of widespread uh, unlawful activity. And so when we look at this case, it's got a long way to go, and there's still a lot to come. But we're probably looking at a ruling that uh, is not particularly favourable for the Mirror Group. It's just a case of how many stories the judge rules were the subject, the, the product of uh, unlawful news gathering and or phone hacking, and then looking at how much they have to pay out. Maybe this is an unanswerable question without hearing it from their own legal team. But if the documentary evidence is, in other words, if the you were talking about the kind of background case, if that documentary evidence, the call records, the 
background from the previous phone hacking case, they already lost the fact that Harry's mobile number was uh, had been obtained by Mirror Group journalists. If all that is so strong, why would the Mirror Group not simply admit a larger number of these allegations and then leave Harry with only the stuff that he's likely to lose? Like, why not simply admit the phone hacking? Well, once they start admitting phone hacking is the product, uh, you know, that, that a particular person, uh, such as Prince Harry, it has been the victim of phone hacking. It makes it, it makes it very difficult to then argue that one story or the other was not the product of, of illegality or phone hacking with the background of a newsroom that was, was routinely using the technique and an admission that a certain target was uh, was subjected to this this unlawful behaviour. Uh, one of the things in the Mirror Group's favour, and of course we're talking a stage now where nothing's been decided and the judge may well come back and say you've not proved the case at all, that you've not proved that Prince Harry was the target of, of unlawful behaviour. But one of the things strongly in the Mirror Group's favour is that there is no data for Prince Harry, there's no phone records. There's no evidence of anybody actually hacking a phone, and 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 they've had some of the 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 whistleblowers, the people who were actually in the the Mirror Group's newsrooms doing the hacking, and and they said we didn't hack Prince Harry's phone. So that's 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 the the central thing that the Mirror Group are are holding on to is that there isn't the evidence there. the The case against them is built on the idea that they were phone hacking. X, Y, and Z, all these dozens and dozens of people who they've already admitted doing it to. Uh, and therefore, you know, it's, it's, you must have also done Prince Harry as well. And so it's, it, that's the real central question in this case. And the Mirror Group, I, I mean, I can't speak to legal strategies or, or whether there's any truth to it, but an admission that they had been hacking Prince Harry's phone would open the floodgates for, for much, much more, I'm sure. Now, this obviously isn't only a lawsuit. It's also got a kind of PR dimension to it as well. And Harry um, said in a TV interview in January that he wants to make it his life's mission to change the media landscape in Britain, to kind of reform the tabloid press. He's obviously, he's written this um, very long 27,000 word statement, much of which is actually not particularly about the detail of the case. He's, for example, said that the UK press and the British government are at rock bottom um, and that somebody needs to hold all these people to account. Do you think, and this is my central question, which I would be fascinated to know the answer to, and I'm interested in your take on it. Do you think it is possible to redraw the landscape of the British media in the modern era based on allegations that are rooted in the past? Well, in a word, no. Uh, I, th- I think that this is, you can tell from the way that Harry's approached this and other lawsuits is that he sees this as a vehicle for change, as to say to newspapers, you can't do this anymore. The, the reaction of the newspapers in the modern day to him giving evidence is incredibly telling as to how this is going to go in the future. I think win or lose, uh, Prince Harry is always going to be the centre of media attention, both in the UK and abroad, particularly in America. That's never going to go away. And the newspapers are showing absolutely no sign of, of changing the way they go they go about this in terms of following around, uh, intruding into people's 
private life, and particularly Prince Harry, reporting every scrap of detail they can. And ever since he's started waging this this war in the courts against them, they're just increasingly hostile coverage of his activities. And and so he might want to redraw the landscape, but he's actually putting himself even further into the spotlight by doing it. And it doesn't look like there's any sign from any of the sort of the, the major players in the, in the media that that's going to change uh, whether this case goes one way or the other. Mm. And, and you're right to highlight, we're talking about, you know, as far back as 1996, we're talking about pre uh, the death of Princess Diana, when everything was supposed to change anyway, so we're, we're actually going right back into the archive. And and if they if the judge comes back and says, well, there's there's been you know a terrible behaviour, unlawful activity back in the mid nineties, and then the, the newspapers will presumably the ones that were responsible for that can turn around and say, well, yes, there was, but that's in the past. That's something that's not uh, really relevant to the future. Indeed. And it's, a, I suppose, quite a difficult situation for him if this case doesn't go the way he wants it to, because it's not his only lawsuit. He currently has five ongoing. He just recently lost his first one, which is a judicial review into his police protection, uh, into a government decision that he was not entitled to pay for his police protection. Um, this is one of three that relate to historic allegations of phone hacking. He's also suing the Murdoch Empire, and he's suing the publisher of the Daily Mail, Mail on Sunday, and Mail Online. So, I mean, presumably one can imagine that if this case didn't go his way, that would have a significant psychological impact on him going into the other two cases? Uh, possibly, uh, although I wouldn't r- rule it out, uh, you know, that him plowing on regardless, even if this doesn't go his way. It's different media organisations. Uh, with the um, with the, the Rupert Murdoch's organisation, uh, News UK or News Group newspapers, uh, there was a significant amount of um, evidence that was that was retained in that in their organization when phone hacking came to light in a different way to the mirror group where there was a lot of deletion of emails and destruction of evidence um that's a case which which is very much on a different grounds the the most fascinating case um i think uh, is the one against the mail group associated newspapers the publisher of the uh, the, the daily mail uh, alleging phone hacking um, alongside the likes of um, Elton John. Um, that's a case which opens up an entirely new front in the whole phone hacking saga within the British media, because because the Daily Mail has said um, from the outset and, and throughout, phone hacking wasn't something that we did. And so uh, even if Prince Harry suffers a defeat in this case against the Mirror and also the case against the Sun, you can well see him pursuing the case against the Daily Mail, which I think is is the newspaper which is um, which is most in his sights, one of his key opponents, and has been the most critical of him over the last few years. It's a fascinating case that as well, because he's accusing them of live wiretapping his telephone calls, which it's not that phone hacking is fine, clearly, but I think there is a significant distinction between um, hacking a voicemail message and live listening into a call, which is that some of the, it has been suggested that some of the journalists who did phone hacking may not have been fully appraised of the law, whereas there is not a single person alive anywhere in the world who does not know that you are not allowed to live listen in on another person's phone call or bug their house. I think there's allegations of bugging houses and bugging cars. So I think I'm right in saying, and please disagree with me if you believe that I'm wrong, but when judges tend to 
get to the point of dishing out damages. It's obviously not a sentencing in a civil case, but dishing out damages. The seriousness of the offending is a factor. And presumably... Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's what the activity was and also the knowledge of whether it was wrong in the first place. So you are right that uh, uh, voicemail interception, I think, started off, it's fairly well documented, as, as a practice that there was maybe a, an element of doubt as to whether that was okay or not, whether that was within the boundaries of the law or even whether people were thinking about it. Whereas the idea of uh, what I understand was a practice of sort of parking a van outside a target's house and then intercepting a, a live call, at least that's the allegation, is that there was some sort of interception device to listen in on phone calls as they were going on. Uh, there's there's no there's no doubt there's no question that that's not a, a practice that was within the law, whether it went on went on or not, and whether it can be proved is is a different matter. But yes, you're, you're talking about damages going upwards and upwards. And the the other the other key indicator is is how long these things went on for. And so Prince Harry's case is is one that spans between fifteen and twenty years. So the damages are are if he's victorious on all these stories, set to be fairly enormous. Now, I have one more question, which is about Harry's lawyer, a man called David Sherborne, who's kind of virtually a celebrity in his own right in Britain. And I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying he's, he's a superstar barrister and there's no way Harry could possibly lose because David Sherborne is so across all of the detail of these phone hacking cases. On the other hand, David Sherborne recently lost a major high-profile lawsuit between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. This is Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, UK version. Obviously, um, Depp won in America, but he lost in Britain. And uh, Sherborne also initially represented Meghan in her lawsuit against the Mail on Sunday. Um, He was taken off that case with diary clashes being the official reason. I have to say, though, that it did seem to me that Meghan's case started going a lot better after he left. Um, what is your view very quickly on Sherborne? Is he the superstar or is he somebody who has a track record of losing? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, I absolutely love uh, cases involving David Sherborne because he's uh, he's an audience pleaser. He's he's great, great theatre, great to watch, uh, and he does have a he does have a really good command of his case, uh, and you know that's why he's he's in the top spot. He's not a KC. He's not in the the top tier um, in that respect, but he is one of the top ones that the the famous people go to princess diana went to elton john all those uh, i don't think there's there's a you know there's a almost certain to win kind of position that barristers can get into and there's not a you know he's a loser of a barrister either it depends on the strength of the case uh, he lost the johnny depp case because the the evidence was was not not in his favour, and, and it wasn't for want of trying or his usual uh, eloquent way of presenting a case. Uh, I've no idea why he departed from the Meghan Markle case. It may well be that somebody else had a different specialty, but uh, he certainly is uh, the barrister uh, in the know when it comes to phone hacking cases. He's got a whole team around him who know their brief inside out. But I must say he's up against a very good barrister for Mirror Group. Uh, Andrew Green, Casey, is uh, one of the best and his cross-examination so far has been pretty stellar. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining me, Tristan. Yeah, no worries. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, Americans back Harry and Meghan's account of their run-in with the paparazzi in New York. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, regular listeners may remember that Harry and Meghan were followed by the paparazzi in New York after the Women of Vision Awards Gala, which was at a place called Ziegfeld Ballroom, for those who are not familiar with New York. There was a big debate at the time about whether the Sussexes had misled the public through a statement from their spokesperson, which described a a near-catastrophic car chase and a relentless pursuit lasting two hours. Now, this seemed to leave people with the impression that it was kind of like a a full two hours of high-speed car chase. Now, the first people to kind of start to knock that down a little bit were the NYPD, who suggested that it was a very challenging experience for them because of the, because of the actions of photographers, but there were no arrests made. The New York mayor then suggested that it was difficult to believe that it was a two-hour high-speed chase. Um, ultimately, also, a taxi driver um, suggested, suggested that he wouldn't have referred to it as a near-catastrophic chase. Um, needless to say, however... Here at Newsweek, we asked polling agency Redfield and Wilton to ask Americans whether they believed Harry and Meghan's accounts, and here are the results. So, 72% of people had heard about the incident, and of those 72%, 54% believed Harry and Meghan. This compares to 27% who felt their account was inaccurate. Um, now, one thing that's interesting is that young people were more likely to believe them than older people. So 60% of 18 to 24-year-olds believed them compared to 40% of over 65s. People who have followed the pattern of public opinion in Britain probably won't be surprised to hear that because in Britain, they are much less popular with the older generation than with the younger generation. Um, however, that is not a trend that we have actually tended to see in America. In America, it's much more even across the generational divide. So that was qu- quite an interesting dimension to it. Um, but it, it seems like the story had quite a lot of reach, went far and wide. I mean, you know, anything in the 70s is a big percentage of America having come across this story. Um, 26% said they were very familiar with it, 21% fairly familiar, and 25% slightly familiar. But there's also the actual kind of point that Harry and Meghan were trying to get across was about the uh, the bad behaviour of the paparazzi. So it, it wasn't simply about whether they were being accurate. It was about them saying that the paparazzi were out of line and mistreated them. So we also asked people whether they felt that the news organisations who ran pictures or video from this incident had made the wrong decision or the right decision. Now, 41% said those news organisations made the wrong decision in running that material compared to 28% who felt it was the right decision. 
Um, interestingly, British newspapers who ran those pictures pulled them down off their websites after Harry and Meghan um, gave their statements. But the one organisation that didn't was TMZ in America. So that's quite interesting in terms of the question of whether Harry and Meghan might start taking their battle against the media more onto US soil. We've seen them throw allegations. I mean, Harry has been throwing allegations at the British press for years. I recall seeing an interview on his 21st birthday where he was having a go at the British press. However, it would be genuinely new if they started to have a go at the American media in the same way that they have with the British media. We've seen very little of that. Not unheard of, but very little. Um, interestingly the saga does not appear to have damaged Harry and Meghan's net approval rating so they they took a massive hammering after Spare was published in January and it precipitated a huge drop in their popularity in America and they went crashing into negative territory so what I mean by that is we put together something called a net approval rating which is the percentage of people who like you less the percentage of people who dislike you that gives you a net rating on balance Um, now where they stand right now they still lag behind other members of the royal family the likes of Prince William and Kate Middleton who are America's favourite living royals and they are below where they stood in December before this kind of big collapse following spare but they are comfortably in positive numbers again in their net approval ratings Harry was on plus 18 and Meghan was on plus 6. So that's quite interesting in terms of trying to understand in greater detail what caused the collapse in their popularity after Spare. And obviously the big difference between the paparazzi incident and Spare is that in the paparazzi incident, Harry and Meghan were attacking the media Now, media, you know, really popular hate figure in both Britain and America, and I would suggest on both sides of the political divide. In spare, Harry was criticising his family, and I think that is a major difference here. It would seem that Americans have very little appetite for Harry to continue attacking his family, seemingly again and again, but they have much more of an appetite for seeing Harry criticise the media. So I think that will um, be positive, that will be viewed positively by his team. You know, they can come away from this paparazzi incident feeling confident that Harry's court cases in Britain will play well in America. To whatever extent they're covered in America and people hear about them, I think that they can feel confident that the public will back Harry and not the press. Right, I'm going to take one more quick break, but before I do, just a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, there is a new royal baby after Princess Eugenie gave birth to her second son. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. 
Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, Princess Eugenie has given birth to her second child, Ernest George Ronnie Brooksbank. He is 13th in the line of succession. He has come in just ahead of his uncle, Prince Edward, and he was born on Tuesday, May the 30th. Now, we only found out about this very recently. Um, He weighed seven pounds and one ounce, and Eugenie and her husband, Jack Brooksbank, are delighted Buckingham Palace has set. On Instagram, Eugenie said Ernest was named after his great-great-great-grandfather George, his grandpa George, and my grandpa Ronald, so her grandpa. Um, He is the couple's second child, and their first, August, is, according to Eugenie, loving being a big brother already. So congratulations to Eugenie and Jack, and what a lovely note to end on. And that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The Debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.